I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends, Amy is like a golden retriever, and I'm like a grumpy cat, talk about all the coolness that comes from living a bookish life. Each week, we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. It's always a lot of fun to connect with bookish podcasters, to learn why they started their shows and what they get from it. This week's guest, Jennifer Caloyeris, is the host of Books Are My People. On her show, she has a bookish news segment and also recommends five books, most of them brand new releases to listeners each week. Every other week, she interviews a bookish guest. Jennifer lives in California and teaches writing at the UCLA Extensions Writers Program. She is also a published author of several young adult novels, and she will soon publish her first adult novel. She talks to us about why she enjoys books about unlikable characters, how she reads eight to ten books a week, which is just crazy, and a fun musical secret about herself that concerns Ted Lasso. But first, life is still boring, Carrie. Yeah. I mean, it got... A little bit better for me this past week because I was able to get out of quarantine. The downside is that that meant I I went back to uh, substitute teaching middle schoolers, (laughs) which is no fun. So I sort of went from, you know... Something boring to something downright unpleasant. So, you know. (laughs) I feel like I'm still in a hole. I'm still in the hole of my house. And it's been really cold and snowy. And I'm a four seasons kind of girl. I love all the seasons. And I enjoy some snowy cold weather in the wintertime. But I am about done, I will say. I am ready for it to be a little bit warmer. Yeah. I think it makes a difference, too, when you just know you can't. You know, I love to stay at home, but when I was under quarantine, I was getting frustrated because I couldn't even go, like, pick up something at the grocery store. You know, after a while, it just wears on you emotionally. Okay, so, Carrie, we need to talk about Wordle. Okay. You were talking about Wordle a couple weeks ago, and I lasted a little while and thought, I'm not going to do that stupid game. And then I did. I caved. Yeah. And I did it. It's kind of fun. I mean, it, yeah. even even my boys were trying to figure out Wordle. You know, as with anything, <sighs> social media just takes something and ruins it. Because basically, as soon as everybody's doing something, I'm like, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> you know, so if people want to play Wordle, that's fine. But everybody's like posting their Wordle score. And I'm like, who cares? It takes like five minutes out of your day. Great. You did it. Who cares? I don't know. <laughs> well, I have to say I have posted my score twice. Now, I'm probably not going to do it again, but I posted it today because I got it in three. And I don't think I've ever gotten one in three before. And I was pretty proud of myself. So I did <laughs> post that one, but I'm probably not going to do it anymore because even as I posted, I'm like, well, who really cares what score I got? I don't know. I only posted it today because it was like, I had to like pat myself on the back, but my husband has been holding out and he did Wordle today. He started oh. Wordle today. Yeah. Like I said, it's fun. I don't, I don't have a problem with Wordle. I don't have a problem with everybody on the planet playing Wordle, but I don't need to know that everybody in the world is playing Wordle. Cause that'll but, make you want to stop playing Wordle. Yeah. Because that's yeah. the kind of person you are. That yeah. is the kind of person. As soon as something becomes, you know, like <laughs> I said, I just, I'm just very, what's the word? What is it? It's a word for when somebody 
doesn't want to do what everybody else wants him to do. So you're oppositional. I guess. I guess. Contrary. You're is that contrary. the word? I'm, I am. One of my dogs is like that. She. Which one? Mochi. Oh. If the other two dogs are playing and having fun, she has to go over and bark at them and <laughs> ruin their fun because they're having fun and she does not like it it's bothering her and so she's gonna let him know about it you're just like that i that is my sole purpose on social media <laughs> that is that is why i'm on social media is to be the the buzz kill for everybody <laughs> anyway well i'm done now but and now let's listen to to what jennifer has to say because she's far more interesting than me jennifer calieras thanks so much for joining us today thank you so much for having me i'm so excited to be here i listen to your podcast and it's always fun for me when i get to have my favorite podcasters on my podcast. So that's that's a thrill. Thanks so much for joining us. And you are a writer and your podcast, Books Are My People, is one of my favorite podcasts. Tell us just a little bit about you. Tell us the scoop on your reading life as a kid and as a teenager. Were you always a big reader? Well, thank you so much for having me. I am also a fan of your podcast. So this is really a thrill for me to be here as well. And yes, I have always been a reader, definitely not as voracious as I am now, obsessive, voracious. I'm not sure what you would call it at this point, but I've always had a large appetite for books. I think some of my earliest memories are reading under the covers with a flashlight after my parents told me it was time to go to bed because I just couldn't put the book down. And I remember fondly being in a junior grade books program in sixth grade and really loving that. I was like, you mean you just get to read books and talk about them? And then it continued in high school. My English teachers in high school were all so seminal in fostering my love for both reading and writing. And they instilled this notion that books could be in conversation with one another, which I found really exciting. And uh, then I went on to study literature in college and I received a master's in English and then a MFA in creative writing. So yeah, books have always been a huge part of my life. It sounds like you did the standard English. Yes, I did not path. deviate. Did yes. not deviate. <laughs> when you were a kid, were there certain genres that you tended to to gravitate towards? I definitely liked, I don't know, your standard literature for young kids, you know, like Charlotte's Web and all that. But I do remember sneaking into my parents' room and stealing. My dad was reading Tales of the City by Armstead Malpin, which is not appropriate for young children, but he would read them voraciously. So he'd finish one and kind of put it in a stack and I knew he was done with it. So he wouldn't be looking for it. And I would sneak it out and read it. (laughs) And that was just very exciting. I read that book a year or two ago, and I I didn't really even have any idea exactly what it was about. I knew there was a TV show on it. And it's so funny because I listened to it on audiobook. I listen to my audiobooks usually while I'm walking my dog. I don't always do so well listening to fiction because if I get distracted by my dogs or something, I could miss some big thing, right? It wasn't until recently when I was reading about Tales of the City and one of the the big surprises of that book, I totally missed it. I don't know. My dogs were barking or something. The dangers, well, the perils of reading. I and know. Walking. 
And before we had started recording, we were talking about the, the downsides of having three dogs. So apparently this is one of the downsides of having three dogs and trying to take them on a walk is that you miss <laughs> major plot points. I did. Which major is why I, character yes. traits. Yes, which is why I usually stick with nonfiction, but we can go on. (laughs) Jennifer, how would you describe your podcast to somebody who's never listened to it? My opening tagline pretty much sums it up. It's a podcast for book lovers with bookish news, recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life in Los Angeles. And the only thing I'd add that's not included there is that I read widely. So there's not one specific genre that I cover over the course of an episode. I tend to recommend five books each episode to listeners, and these books can run the gamut from literary fiction to suspense novel to thriller, maybe a work in translation, essays, and then nonfiction. But I'd say I definitely skew more towards fiction. I was really astounded, you know, because I think I'm like, oh, I'm a pretty well-read person. And I was looking at all of the books from your podcast and I'm like, I haven't heard of any of these. So where do you find the books that you decide to, to read? I definitely go and seek them out. I think everyone's going to hear about, you know, your top 10 bestsellers, and those are going to be on prominent display at the bookstore, and everyone will hear those voices. And I really love, like, finding a secret stash or, you know, finding secret treasures of books that no one's ever heard of before. So, you know, I read pretty widely about books that are coming out. I don't like reading reviews. I don't like reading reviews for anything, for movies, for TV shows, because I don't want it to spoil my experience. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, a lot of trigger warnings tend to give re- reveal really big plot points. So I just try and stay away from any kind of review of books ahead of time. But I will keep track of what books are coming out, and I'll just read whatever their jacket comment is and kind of see if it's something that I might gravitate towards. And I'll I'll start it. And I have to say, I don't finish all the books I start. I don't know if some people feel obligated to finish books. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Yeah, but I, definitely I tend to be not. on the obligation thing. Oh, no, no, not <laughs> I'm not. And I'm not. So we're opposites in that respect. For, you say you don't read any reviews beforehand. So have I you don't. ever read one that you loved when you go to put it on Goodreads? It's gotten terrible reviews. Oh, that's a really good question. I think the closest example of that that I can think of from recent memory off the top of my head is a book called Why Fish Don't Exist. And that's on my TBR. Lulu Miller. So good. Yes. Lulu Miller, who worked heavily on NPR and she's amazing. And it's all about this man who it was right at the the big earthquake in San Francisco, he collected fish specimens and he was responsible, I think, for collecting and cataloging 75% of the world's fish population. And he had them in these jars where he meticulously sewed on a label to each fish to have it categorized. And when the earthquake happened, all the jars fell and the fish got all mixed up. And this man just had an incredibly fascinating life. He went on to be, I'm not sure if it was a regent or a president, helped found Stanford University. And he also has um, some more darker sides to his tale. And I think for me, it was a fascinating read. It just, as, and Lulu Miller is also telling her own narrative um, intertwined with his narrative, which I thought was great, but he has some darker shady sides to him and he is not 
a wholly likable character by any means. And I think that the book got criticized because of that, whereas that that wasn't an issue for me. Like you can throw all the unlikable people my way. And if they're written about in an engaging and interesting and thought provoking way, I'm there for it. His name was um, David Starr Jordan. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because none of us is perfect. And some of us are I guess, more imperfect than others. But, you know, it seems like sometimes readers, they want this all or nothing. And it's like, okay, the reality. I mean, one of my favorite plays is Macbeth. I love Macbeth. He's a terrible, despicable character, but there's just so much there to examine. So I don't necessarily understand why people don't. Love bad guys more? What? I mean, you don't have to love them. You don't have to love what they do. But I guess it's kind of like that. Should people be written off? Because, you know, especially if they make, worthwhile contributions in one area I don't know like I I think there has to be a balance you know there's some people that definitely like they're in the bad guy category and I don't know that they could do anything to redeem themselves but I'm just I'm I'm going off on a tangent here so I'm going to shut up (laughs) I have heard from some readers that they it's very important to them that they can imagine themselves as friends with the protagonist of a story. And I, really? I'm just huh. not that I, I have real life friends. Like I, I yeah. don't read books to have friends. I just mm-hmm. read books to sort of learn about humanity and humanity covers all sorts of things, the good, the bad and everything in between. Right. Tell us why you decided to start your podcast and how it came to life. So I really wish I could say it was born out of the pandemic, but I actually started about six months prior. So you know, maybe I knew that the pandemic was coming, but I had been reading a ton of books and I wanted to record that experience in a way that might be helpful to others. As I'm sure you both are, I'm always the friend that people go to, to ask for book recommendations. And the one thing I will say about that is I take it very seriously. I never give a blanket recommendation to people I know. Figuring out who they are as a reader is totally fascinating to me, and it's so satisfying to match the right reader with the right book. But I teach in the creative writing department at UCLA Extension's Writers Program, and one of the perks of the job is that for every class that I teach, I get to take a class for free. So I don't always have time to take advantage of this, but One quarter, I signed up for a music production course where we had to produce a song using multiple tracks and then learn how to edit it. And basically, I took everything I learned from that class and applied it to the podcast, including writing my own theme song. Oh, wow. I didn't know you wrote your own theme song. That's really cool. I'm so sick of it now. (laughs) I'm so sick of it and I want to change it. But every time I listen to a podcast and they change the theme song, I feel like I've been cheated on. It's just, it feels (laughs) awful. I'm like, I will not do that to people. So that's so great that you took a course and someone professional taught you how to do it. We had a teenager. We paid a teenager 20 bucks (laughs) to show us how to edit. (laughs) Which which really says a lot about the high quality of production on our show. Like, well, you're getting $20 worth of teenager instruction. I still have more so, questions. I feel like there's ways that my life could be made easier, but I just haven't figured it out yet. Maybe I need a teenager. I have a teenager in my house downstairs, but he is not helpful for this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, we didn't, we didn't use at-home help. We, we, right. we outsourced that. So. <laughs> Has your podcast changed at all from what you started with? Have you tweaked it? 
it's pretty similar. I don't think I had a news segment at the beginning. I'm actually a little sheepish about going back and listening. I'm too scared to do it. It's like looking at old photos of when I had a perm and braces in fifth grade. <laughs> I think it's going to sound horrible and I didn't know what I was doing. So I haven't gone back to listen, but I don't think I had a news segment. So adding that was fun. And of course, the biggest highlight was adding regular guests for so many reasons. I love talking to other writers and to other people who are passionate about books. I started off by just inviting writers on the show, but I've really broadened my scope. And now I love anyone who's passionate about books on the show. I even had my first bookstagrammer on the last episode, Jessica Laguna from The Towering TBR on Instagram. And as the podcast has grown, it's just been easier finding guests to come on the show. In fact, most of the time they come and find me. So now I'm booking out around nine months in advance. But yeah, if someone had told me that that would be the case when I started, I would not have believed them. But I also have to stipulate, I only publish, release a podcast every two weeks. So And you have a guest only one of those times. That's so right. it's so every it's other episode. Year. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to start maybe adding more. I'm terrified about having to read more because as it is, I already read, I'd say probably eight to 10 books to find the five that I want to recommend because I don't love every book I read. So, well, I, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, on each episode, you recommend five books. So, how many books do you normally read in a week? I would say eight to 10. I used to be able to rely on backlist, but I think I've gone through all of the backlist. So it's wow. only book forward from here on out. But yeah, I, I read a lot of books. I prioritize the ones I really love. If I didn't love it or like it very much, I will not recommend it. I get sent a lot of free books, but only books that I truly like or love make it onto the show. And I also like to say that I'm a book positive podcaster. I will never say negative things about a book I didn't like. For me, reading is such a personal experience and it's not my job to yuck anyone's book yum. And as a writer myself, I'm really sensitive to all of the time and effort it takes to get a book published. And I don't want to be that person who tears down another author's hard work. So I tend to think of books like food and that not everyone has the same taste. That's a that's a good way to think about it. You talked a little bit about your news segment, and I really love that segment. And that's where you talk about bookish news, but like, like um, who won the that, National Book Award? Yes, or that a you know favorite book is going to be adapted into a movie, something like that. Um, and I love that little segment, and I've not really heard it on many other podcasts. But one of the unique things about your podcast compared to all the other ones that I listen to is that. It requires a relatively small time commitment from your listeners. Your episodes are around 30 minutes, so it's perfect for short drives or other tasks. Why did you choose to have shorter over longer? You totally called me out here. I was looking through <laughs> I was looking through my episode length today. I was just looking through to see like how long are they really? And I found an episode that was 10 minutes long. Oh my god. <laughs> I think I really hit the caffeine that morning and I was just go, 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 go. 
Oh my gosh. It is short. Yes, it is a short podcast. It's not really an aesthetic choice. It's more that my circumstance is that I don't have a lot of free time. I teach at UCLA. I write novels. I edit other people's novels as a side hustle. I have two kids that keep me busy. So I kind of knew going into this, if I was going to do it, it wouldn't be a super long show. And as it is, in order to get five books that I really like or love on the show, like I said, I have to read around eight to 10 books every two weeks. So I can't imagine fitting in any more reading. And as it is, I find creative ways to get more reading in. I listen to audiobooks at a faster clip. Sometimes a, a little chipmunk is narrating <laughs> the book to keep it going faster, just get through. Uh, keeping books on my phone for easy access if I'm away from home. And I also suffer from insomnia. So that lends mm. itself to more reading time in the middle of the night that I didn't know I had. And just as you observed, I wanted this to be the kind of thing that you could pop on on the way home from work or a supermarket run or walking the dogs and get a little book buzz and then go on with your day. Yeah, I think that's really attractive to a lot of people because I know I have some friends who they don't listen to podcasts a lot because they say they just don't have a long enough period of time to to listen to one, the full thing. And I would say the majority of podcasts are around an hour. So I think one that's half an hour is a really nice length for a lot of people. One of the things I wanted to ask you, it used to be that every year I would say, okay, I'm going to read one like long book. I'm going to read one 600, 800,000 page book. And I would do that intentionally. But since Amy and I started doing the podcast, I just can't do that. Now I did start a book recently that's around 600 pages, but I really wanted to read it. So do you have any rules that you sort of give yourself in terms of when you're choosing a book, just because you're trying to read so many? Oh, now you're getting deep into my crazy book psychology. <laughs> well, yes, I'm reading Cloud Cuckoo Land by mm-hmm. Anthony Doerr. So for a, a long book, my rule is I break it into like four short books. So I'll okay. read the first 150 pages and then read a book and then come back to it. So I kind of oh. alternate just psychologically that helps me feeling like I'm having some forward momentum. And then I have a rule that when I'm on vacation, so like winter break, I will not read any books for work. So no net galley, only books that I want to read that I've perhaps purchased for myself or been gifted by someone that's on my to read list solely for pleasure. If it makes it on the show because I loved it, great, but it's not sort of this cranking out page numbers. And then I always try and alternate. So I'll do a net galley book. I'll read the book of the person who's coming on my show. And then I'll read a book. I have a long list at Libby, the library. Mm -hmm. App. Yeah. So I just try and alternate where my books are coming from and just kind of keep going in circles. I love that tip of breaking down a really long book into segments like that. I've never thought about doing that, but I tend to shy away from really long books. There have been a few really, really long books that I have absolutely loved, but reading them didn't feel particularly long. Like Lonesome Dove was one of those books mm-hmm. for me. It's a really long book, but it went really fast. So generally I try to shy away from those, but I like that suggestion. I, maybe I could try one if I could break it down into digestible pieces like that. That's, yeah. a, that's a great tip. If your memory is like mine, you might have to take a couple of notes just so when you come back to it, you remember where you were and what was happening. I use Post-its a lot like, Okay, here's where I left off and here's where I'm diving back in. 
So, I, I mean, I wouldn't have thought about it before Amy and I started this podcast about, I read because I want to read. And now I do teach. So there are books that if I'm going to teach them, I reread them. So, you know, I'm refreshed and I, I can pick up extra things that maybe I didn't notice before when I taught the book. But I think if you're doing a podcast and if you take it seriously, I think it, it can sort of feel like a job, you know, it can sort of feel like this pressure and that to me at least, it sometimes sucks the fun out of reading. And so, you know, you mentioned book psychology, but I I think you really do, if you're going to do a podcast or if you're going to do bookstagram or whatever it is, you really sort of have to develop techniques for how you manage it. Even though you're doing it out of love and and joy and something you want to share with others, it can really start to, to wear you down a little bit. I think that's why I'm pretty strict with my, I give a book 50 pages and if I'm not hooked, I, I put it down. There's there's mm-hmm. too much else to read. So I'm just so used to doing a podcast with another person and I'm always having a conversation, but because your episodes alternate back and forth between some of them, it just being you and then some of them where you have a guest on, is it hard to record by yourself with no one to bounce off of? Well, I can't stand the sound of my voice, so I always think I sound really awkward, but sometimes I feel like I'm the only person in the world listening to my podcast. In fact, I almost have to pretend that that's the case, otherwise I get too self-conscious. But yeah, I think it was awkward at first, but I like being my own boss, and I think that's why I'm a writer, and I like the production aspect of podcasting and having creative control, and it makes having a guest on the show really exciting because then I get to have (laughs) an actual conversation with someone else. But on the weeks that I'm alone, it feels like a vacation for one in a good way. Well, you do sound totally natural, but I will say that there have been times where I have had to try to record a segment without Carrie. Like maybe we flub something up and I have to try to re-record something. And if I do it just by myself without her there, it sounds really strange to me. It's almost like even if she doesn't say anything, I almost need her on the other microphone just to sit there (laughs) just to have a person there for it to sound natural does that make sense like I need another human body clearly you don't walk around your house talking to yourself like I do (laughs) maybe I just need to put my three dogs sitting right there and pretend like I'm talking to them that might be better So you mentioned the Lulu Miller book, Why Fish Don't Exist. Are there other books that have really just stood out to you or or had a special impact on you that you found as part of doing your podcast? I want to try and hit on a book for each genre that I talk about. So for contemporary fiction, I'd go with, and please let me know if you have read these, because I just want to hear your opinions as well. Um, Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. Nope. It's about a babysitter <laughs> who works for an affluent family in New York, and she gets racially profiled in a supermarket while babysitting, and the book explores the fallout from that moment. And it's just a fun ride that's really well-developed and deals with so many current issues. There's so much to talk about. So you can add that to your to read. Yes. Um, and in the nonfiction department, uh, one that really wrecked me, and you have to sort of be in a solid emotional place to read this, is Once More We Saw Stars by Jason Green. And this is a memoir written by a father who recounts how his two-year-old daughter was hanging out with her grandmother in New York City. And in a complete freak accident, the daughter is hit in the head with a brick and passes (gasps) away. And the book is just 
so, so sad, but, and I know this is going to sound weird, but it's also really uplifting in surprising ways um, in the way that he came together with his mother-in-law. And I think you need to not have young children to read this book. Mm. So that was Once More We Saw Stars by Jason Green. And in the young adult genre, which is one of my favorites because I write young adult novels and I also teach young adult novel writing, one that I loved was called When We Were Vikings. No, not heard of that one. That is by David McDonald, and it is a novel about an autistic teen who's obsessed with Vikings, and she learns that her brother has been up to no good. So there's all this Viking lore in it, but it's also very modern. It's beautifully written and it's a coming of age story oh that one wow. sounds good that one i'm writing good i'm not commenting because i'm writing these down <laughs> and then for horror of course anything by grady hendrix uh that's the vampire baby no vampire club uh, yeah, slayer slayers yes the, the guy <laughs> to wait we're gonna figure this out the yes. book book Wait, hang on. Wait, wait, wait. I've got you it. Want to it. Out? The book, book lovers, the book club's guide to slaying vampires. Southern girls book club's yeah. guide to slaying vampires. <laughs> okay. Real housewives How, of the, the Southern book club's guide to slaying vampires. I've got it. It was. I, I'm sitting here looking at it. I'm like looking at it, but I'm attached to my computer. I'm like, How, I have to go grab it. How many bookish podcasters does it take to get the title <laughs> more book three. correct? More apparently. Than three. Oh my gosh. That's so, so funny. I think I think he's just such a fun horror book. I have uh, one of his earlier books, which is called Horror Store, which takes place sort of at his version of Ikea. And it's actually written in an Ikea-esque catalog, which is just <laughs> so fun. And most recently, he wrote The Final Girls Support Group, which is about all these final girls who are sort of the last women standing after mm-hmm. a slasher comes through and they're in their own support group. And then they find out that they're being targeted. No, well, I have one final one to throw in there, and that okay. is a book in translation, and it's Yoko Agawa's *The Housekeeper and the Professor*, which is about a woman with a ten-year-old son who cleans a man's house, and the man loses his memory every hour. So it's a beautiful look at life and memory and making connections, and it's definitely one of those just more quiet books, not super plotty, more about character but I loved it. So there you have it. I think I've covered most of the genres that I cover on my show. Cool. I'm super excited. I love to add more books to my never ending list. <laughs> well, we're going to segue here a little bit from your podcast to your life as a writer. You've published a collection of short stories and you've published two young adult novels and you teach creative writing. So how does the podcast complement your work as an author? Or did you think about that when you started your podcast? Well, I think a writer should always be reading. It's sort of rule number one. But as an introvert, I feel like the podcast pushes me to connect with others in a meaningful way. And I can't tell you how many amazing connections I've made with other authors as well as other book enthusiasts through the podcast. So I think reading so widely, I get a feel for what kind of books I want to write. I mentioned earlier that I read a wide variety of genres because I'm interested and also because I tend to get restless, not only as a reader, but I feel like that also extends to my writing. So I always like to write in new directions as well. Do you think that because you are a writer yourself, it changes the questions that you ask your guests who are also authors? 
I'm definitely interested in each writer's process, not because I'm looking for a perfect method or looking to usurp their method. I'm just genuinely curious about how other writers work. For example, my method involves a lot of procrastination. So it's nice to hear (laughs) that other writers also employ that method. I could absolutely focus all of my author interview questions on process, but I don't think that would be the most interesting for everyone Mm -hmm. else. And I can get lost in a book as much as anyone else. So if anything, I make mental notes about what I marveled at, for example, uh, I'm sure you've read this, Catherine Kepnes's You. No, I have not read it. Uh, I have not. Ladies. What I marvel at in this book is her ability to make me root for a serial killer. Like you're uh, reading the book. Okay, and it's the like, one that the show is on. Yes, is based yes. on. The show okay. is based on that. And I would recommend reading the books before okay. watching the show if you can, just because she really, like, you're questioning yourself and your own, like, morals as a human being. Like, why do I want Joe to win when all he does is kill people? <laughs> but that that takes a very deft writer to make a reader align with your horrible protagonist. Right. So yeah, I can't not notice and file away moments to admire, but I'm happy to turn that, that side of my brain off and just be taken on a ride as I read. So tell us a little bit about your books that, that you've written. And is there something that you're working on right now? So I've published two young adult novels, both coming-of-age stories. The most recent one is titled Strays, and it's about a 16-year-old named Iris who has anger management issues, and as a consequence of her actions, she gets sentenced to a summer rehabilitating aggressive dogs, where she gets paired with a pit bull named Roman, who has his own issues with aggression, obviously inspired by my dogs. (laughs) non-aggressive, but I did have an aggressive dog a while ago. And my short fiction collection is a different side of my writing. These stories are dark and weird at times, fairy tale reinterpolations, other times speculative, sort of Angela Carter meets Amy Bender. And they were just so much fun to write. And I've recently finished my fourth book, which is in my agent's hands. And I can't say much about it, except it's a novel for adults that deals with family dysfunction, another topic that I love. And I'm working on a fifth novel, which is a suspense novel. So a totally new genre for me. So that's been especially fun to write. Curious, you went from short fiction and YA and now an adult contemporary novel, and then suspense. I think most people don't switch around as much. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like, you know, they sort of find a groove and stick with it, but you're exploring everything. Has that been hard to try different genres or you find it exciting? I think that I have diagnosed myself with ADHD. (laughs) (laughs) Never by a professional, but I think all signs point to, I probably have it. But I just get restless. I just get bored easily. And I think for me, if I, you know, found one genre to write in the rest of my life, I would just go crazy. So for me, it's, it's just about keeping myself entertained as a writer too, and just challenging myself. And yeah, it's exciting for me. I love right now I'm reading a lot of thrillers and figuring out who done it and I'm writing my own suspense novel and I don't know who done it and I'm like, oh, is that a problem? <laughs> Maybe I'm supposed to know this before I start writing, but I'm figuring it out. That's awesome. So you, so you said the the book is with your agent, right? Yes. 
Okay, so fingers crossed. We are going to take a short little break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Jennifer Calieras and with Carrie. <laughs> Carrie, what are you reading? <laughs> so I had found this book at the Rosewater and I was very excited by it. So way back a long time ago, I don't remember which season it was in. I don't remember which episode it was. It was, it was like two years ago. It was a long time ago. I remember it was in December before COVID. Okay. So we interviewed two women who did work with the Little Free Libraries, Mary and Joan. And Joan talked about this book. And I was really intrigued by what she said. So the book is called The Selected Works of T.S. Spivet by Reef Larson. And so one day I was at the Rosewater and I saw this book. So I bought it and it has been sitting on my shelf for quite a while. So I decided I'm going to read it. All right. So what I remember about Joan and what she said about the book was that it had all these like drawings and maps. It does have all that. So it's a story of this 12 year old boy, T.S. Bibbit, and he makes maps and his maps are so good and so intricate that he gets them published in scientific journals and the Smithsonian uses his maps in their exhibits. The problem is they don't know that he's 12 years old. So he has a helpful college professor friend who sort of got him this gig making these maps for the Smithsonian. So a little bit about T.S. He is 12 years old. He lives in Montana on a ranch. His dad is a devoted rancher, you know, outdoorsman. His mom is an unsuccessful scientist and his younger brother was killed accidentally as a result of a gun malfunction not too long ago in the story. So T.S. learns that he has won a prestigious award from the Smithsonian. But because this college professor friend sort of arranged this, his parents don't know that he's been making these maps for the Smithsonian. And he doesn't really want to tell them because they don't understand why he does these maps. You kind of get the sense that T.S. is maybe on the autism spectrum. T.S. decides that rather than telling his parents that he's won this award, he decides that he is just going to hop on a train and be a hobo and take a train to the Smithsonian from Montana. So he's on this train and he's heading across the the country. You know, there's some weird stuff that goes on. Aside from the fact that he's a 12-year-old boy playing a hobo on a train, there's some like wormhole paranormal type stuff that happens. He meets some allies during his journey, but he also meets some people who threaten him or at the very least don't have his best interests at heart. So the book has received sort of mixed reviews. Now I gave it a four because I thought it was a really unique book. I mean, it does have these illustrations and these captions. It's kind of like the perfect book for somebody who's a little um, ADHD. If they get bored with the, the story, they've got all these things that they can look at and these captions and things. And you, T.S. Spivet is just a really cool kid. You can't help but like him. And I wanted to know more about the story. However, wanting to know more is not the same as being satisfied because the author has given you the answers. Now, personally, that didn't bother me. Again, I like the book. I gave it four stars. But 
if you don't mind parts of a book sort of not coming together in a bow at the end, which I don't mind because life very rarely comes together with a bow at the end. If you have to have everything like solved and perfect at the end of the book, this might not be the one for you, but I personally liked it. So there you go. I love the idea that there's a wormhole. I don't remember Joan mentioning that. I know. I know. Like all I remembered from what she said was like, there's maps. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, that sounds kind of cool. But yeah, so the story, I did not know what to expect. And so there's a lot going on in this book. It kept me interested. It kept me reading. I wanted to figure out. I wanted to learn more. Again, you do get a little bit of resolution at the end, which for me was plenty. I have a 12-year-old, so that sounds right up our alley. Is it written? For middle schoolers, or uh, is it uh, is it an adult book with a twelve year old protagonist? I would say it's an adult book with a twelve year old protagonist. Okay. Yeah. Well, my twelve year old is always interested in the recap, so <laughs> he'd prefer the recap to reading it himself. So. Well, Jennifer, what have you been reading? Probably books that I've never heard of. So. <laughs> Go. <laughs> so I have two that I wanted to recommend today. One, I think maybe you've heard of because it just won the National Book Award. So it's not a hidden gem, but I've heard that even at Powell's, the most famous bookstore in Oregon doesn't even have it on its radar enough to put it at the front of the store. So oh wow, a lot of people didn't have this book on their radar when it won, kind of snuck up on them. And there are some people who get turned off by book awards. So I'm here to say that this book blew me away. That is a hell of a book by Jason Mott. I had never heard of it before. I heard just recently that it won the book award. So no, it wasn't on my radar before that at all. I think it surprised a lot of people. So it has a dual narration. The main story is about an author who is touring for his latest book release. And the book is called Hell of a Book. So yes, it's a little meta. And he's going across (laughs) the country to promote it. His character is smart and funny, and he finds himself in all sorts of wild predicaments. But he's also perhaps at first unknowingly soul-searching for what it means to be a Black writer and what responsibilities he has to the community as a writer of color. And then there's a secondary thread that alternates with the plot's main narrative. And in the secondary thread, we meet Soot, a young boy in a rural town who has experienced adversity even in his short life. The two narratives do this beautiful dance around one another. Each one complements the other and intersect in beautiful, poignant, and surprising ways. And this book is part satire, but also a really earnest look at race in America. And I just loved every minute of this ride. And that was a hell of a book by Jason Mott. Now, did you read it prior to it being shortlisted for the... I did. I did. did. So I was very excited when I heard that announcement. I was like, oh, I've read that book. I love it. And I'm so glad I I usually don't like the award winners sometimes are not the books that I love. There's like a little groan factor sometimes to awards, I think in general, where I'm just like, oh, like who are these tastemakers and why are they picking what I should be reading? But Mm. this one I really loved. So I think maybe the tastemakers interests are broadening, which is great. Good. Good to know. My second pick, The School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan. And it reminded me of a cross between The Handmaid's Tale and Clara and the Sun. And Mm. it's about a really overtired mother, which I sort of is an oxymoron, but who has made the (laughs) terrible mistake of leaving her young child 
home alone while she runs out to do an errand. I think she puts it in one of those, I don't remember what they're called, like the little activity play thing where the child is sort of toddling around and playing. Yeah. So she runs out to do an errand and she gets turned in by a nosy neighbor. And she is then stripped of her parental rights and ends up being sentenced to time at this place called the School for Good Mothers, which is basically a bad parenting prison. It was just so creative and it kept me turning the page. It's all about parenthood and surveillance and what it means to foster community. And I'd say it's a little bit speculative in nature. And that's the School for Good Mothers coming to you soon. Cool. Very I think cool. we've all had a moment like that, haven't we? When we worried that maybe the bad parent police were going to come get us for like, you're just so tired and maybe you leave your kid in the car for a minute while you run into the library to pick up your book. Or, right. yeah. yeah. I only say good. that a because I totally did that. All right. Well, Amy, what have you had going on over there? Well, I finished an audiobook this week called Ordain the Definitive Oral Biography by Laurie Wooliver. So if you're into food or travel at all, you've probably heard of Anthony Bourdain. He started out as a chef and wrote a groundbreaking book called Kitchen Confidential, which lifted the lid on what really goes on in professional kitchens. And that book launched him into a writing career. And he wrote many books on food, but he also wrote a few novels that I don't think very many people know about. But the success of those books then launched him onto TV with shows like No Reservations, The Layover, The Cook's Tour, and finally Parts Unknown, which he did for CNN. And he died by suicide in 2018, and there was much speculation about why he would take his life at that time. And so I never really watched any of Bourdain's shows, but my son is a fan of his, and he isn't really a big reader himself, but one Christmas he asked for Kitchen Confidential. And that was like a huge thing for me as a reader, that there was a book that he wanted. So I decided that I needed to read this book as well. Because if it was exciting to my son and it made him want to be a chef, then I wanted to read it too. So I read Kitchen Confidential and it was exciting and it was juicy and it was at times stomach turning. And Bourdain had this bad boy, tell it like it is writing voice, which felt a little dangerous, but compulsively readable. And I've gone on to read several of his books. So I was interested when I heard on another book podcast, the Book Riot podcast, they were talking about this book that was compiled by his longtime assistant, Lori Wooliver, and it was published this past October. And it's a biography and has a very interesting format. So in the title, it's called an oral biography. And I listened to this on audiobook, so it truly was an oral biography for me. But basically what Wooliver has done is she's interviewed close to 100 people about Bourdain's life starting from when he was a small child up until the end of his life. But she doesn't filter any of it. So usually when a biography is written, the biographer has sort of a lens that all of that information is focused through. So the interviews or the information they collect is filtered through their point of view. And the biographer, in a way, summarizes a life for you. But in this one, there's no prose written by Wooliver. It is each person she interviews talking, and those quotes are pieced together to give you, the reader, your own impression of the man. So she talks to all of his family members, his ex-wives, his ex-girlfriends, his daughter, people he went to school with, people he cooked with, people he worked with in the literary world, TV crew who worked on his shows. 
they explored all aspects of his life. And not all of it is positive. I think it gave a pretty balanced account of his life, flaws and all. And in the audiobook, each of these people narrate their own sections. So probably in the audiobook, you hear from maybe 30 people narrating their own memories of Bourdain. So what was interesting to me was when you get all of these different viewpoints, how complicated a person can be. And I think that's true of almost anyone to an extent. Different people in our own lives would describe us in different ways. I'm not the same person at 49 that I was at 19 or even 39. But in this case, it's more complicated by the fact that Bourdain had a public persona that sometimes differed from his private persona. And sometimes those overlapped, and a lot of times the people who knew him couldn't tell which was which. And did he feel like in the later part of his life that he had to perform or be on, and I'm using that in quotes all the time, how does fame, even if it's something that he wanted, change his life for the worse or for the better? It would be fascinating to do this kind of biography with any person, really. I mean, if you think about yourself, Carrie, if I interviewed a huge swath of people that you'd encountered in any kind of meaningful way since you were a child and in their own words, unfiltered, do you ever wonder how people perceive you? And when you put that into a group after you pass away and you could listen to an audiobook like this, it would be intriguing. It would I think be it would awful. Be- it would be awful if it was about me. <laughs> I don't know. It's like one of those things. Uh, it could be interesting, but it could be it could be awful, right? Be like because you just don't know. It'd be terrifying. But as a reader, it's fascinating. So I have not read the print version, so I cannot comment on what the reading experience is like in that way. But I can vouch for the audiobook. And so for people who don't know who Anthony Bourdain is. This probably isn't the book for you. It does help to have experienced him either through his books or his TV show. But if you are familiar with Bourdain, this is a compelling and fascinating look at his life. And it's unlike any other biography that I have read. That sounds like the perfect book to listen to an audiobook of. Oh, it's absolutely. Yes. Yes. And, I, you know, I really do like audiobooks, too, that have multiple narrators, in general, like I loved Daisy Jones and the Six because it had a full cast. Now that was fiction and this is nonfiction, but I really loved that they had all these different people narrating their own parts. A lot of them are just average people, you know, are not famous or anything. Some of them were not that great of narrators <laughs> of their own stuff. You know, they had very monotonous tone, you know, but that was kind of interesting and their own opinion about Bourdain was individual. And so I kind of, I kind of like that. All the people who knew me would agree that I have a bad attitude. That would be <laughs> that would be the only thing. That would be the thread that connected them all. But oh see, I wouldn't say that. I mean, well, sometimes you have a bad attitude, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> see the thread that connects them all. All right. Well, let's take a short break, and when we come back, Jennifer's going to answer her three in the third degree. We are back with Jennifer. Jennifer, are you ready to answer your questions? I'm ready. Okay. So number one, I'm excited to ask you about this because you have a new puppy. Tell us about her and describe what has been the most adorable thing and what has been the most challenging thing about adding a puppy to the family. Yes, it's true. We got ourselves a pandemic puppy. (laughs) 
<laughs> my husband gave it to me for my birthday. And there are moments where I'm like, is this really a gift or is this <laughs> a burden? I'm not sure. But we have a seven-year-old rescue mutt named Dingo. And then we saw this puppy on social media from a rescue group in Los Angeles called Hit Living Foundation. And we fell in love. They do such a great job matching puppies with owners. Our older dog is super sweet and mellow. And we kept reminding the organization, we know she's a puppy, but we really want a mellow puppy if such a thing exists. <laughs> and they actually paired us with the perfect dog. Rue is a bit over five months now. She just finished her last batch of vaccines so she can mingle with other dogs. And she's been an absolute delight. And I'd say the most challenging thing was the first week or so where I slept on the couch so that I could take her out to pee at all hours of the night. And the cutest thing about her is just the way she cuddles. She loves to cuddle and the way she plays with our older dog. They bonded so quickly. Oh. And uh, I'm currently working from home so I can be with her and I'm excited for her to mature a bit so we can let her roam freely in the house without worrying that she's going to find some trouble. Puppies are one of the most wonderful things, but puppies are also so much work. What you were saying about sleeping on the couch, it's uh, it's like, having, an, it's like having a baby yeah. and having to get up with them multiple times in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or they cry or, but I love the puppy breath, you know, that they have when they're little. <laughs> they do. They have they puppy breath. Like it's puppy. It, I know. They smell like puppy. It's so awesome. Is it a mix? What kind of she's mix? She's a mix. So she, she's definitely a mutt, but she presents as more German shepherd looking, but we actually had her DNA <laughs> testing done. And it turns out she's like 35% Australian cattle dog, which she oh, looks oh. nothing like. And her second breed was was Pitbull. And then her third breed was Chow Chow. And then she was German Shepherd. And then Shih Tzu. And then Super Mutt. So my husband likes to joke <laughs> that she'll Super herd mutt. you all together and then she'll sit on your lap and then she'll eat your face off. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Question two. For people who follow your Instagram ac account, it's clear that you enjoy making art. Your posts are half about books and half about art and art classes that you take. How did this hobby begin and what has been your favorite thing or things to paint? Hmm. Well, I have two friends who enjoy making art and maybe a year or so before the pandemic, we began painting and drawing and creating together. They're both actually connected to the art world. One is a textile designer and the other is an architect. So they're actual talented artists, not hobbyists like myself. But when the pandemic hit, we dove into online classes and free YouTube videos, anything to occupy our minds and distract us from what was going on in the world. So I don't know, we would spend hours just trying new mediums and critiquing one another's work and experimenting and lots of laughter. Uh, and creating art is a lot like writing. There's the initial idea that forms and then the planning for the execution, the actual art making, the editing, the refining. And I think because writing is my job, it feels more like a have to, whereas art feels more like a want to. I like painting any sort of nature scene. I find portraits really challenging, but I try them, even though I don't do them much justice to the poor people that I paint. Um, but I have no fear when it comes to art because I don't consider myself an artist. Like it doesn't bother you if you do it and you don't like it or it's not 
what you had in mind. No, I have a, a good sense of humor about the art that I produce. <laughs> Did you take art before? Because no. your stuff's really good. I mean, the, the things that you post on Instagram. Oh, thank you. Everything looks better in a photograph, by the way. I will just <laughs> say that. But no, I, I never took art before. Mm-mm. It's lovely. Okay, last question. You also have a musical background. So tell us about that and how your musical experience is related to the movie Home Alone and the series Ted Lasso. You really did your due diligence. (laughs) I'm impressed. (laughs) So I'm, I'm really quite myopic in my abilities. I can only do things related to the arts. I can't do anything else, but I do love all arts. I love music. I love to dance, writing, painting. Um, I started classical piano at three and took lessons on and off until I was 21. And then I returned to it as an adult. And around 12 or so, I started composing my own songs. I spent four years as a singer-songwriter in Los Angeles when I was around 21 to 25. And I recorded two albums where I played guitar and piano and sang. And in middle and high school, I always sang in the choir at school and participated in school musicals. And growing up in Los Angeles, we had some pretty unique opportunities, uh, such as getting to sing four songs on the Home Alone soundtrack, which was incredible because the acclaimed John Williams conducted us in front of a full orchestra. And Home Alone just happened to be the highest grossing film ever made the year it came out. So it had some legs and such long legs, in fact, that a recent episode of Ted Lasso used one of the songs during its Christmas episode in season two. So that was really Ah, fun for my kids to hear me in something that they actually watch and care about. That's a great, great story. But I do see a theme with all of your interests. You know, you're definitely the artistic brain going on there. Don't ask me to do any math. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jennifer, it has been so great chatting with you and learning about all your artistic endeavors. Be sure to listen for Jennifer on her podcast, Books Are My People. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. You can find Jennifer Caloyeris at her website, jennifercaloyeris.com, and on her Instagram, at Jennifer Caloyeris. Her podcast, Books Are My People, can be found on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Do you have a favorite book you'd like to share with us or feedback for what types of guests you'd like to hear from? If so, send a message through our website. If you like what we're doing on the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.